The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a wonderful passage that we've been going through in regards to ministry. One of the things I want to just keep hammering away that the New Testament teaches that every single Christian is a minister of Jesus Christ. The word minister simply means servant. It's not a lofty title. Sometimes what the church has done throughout church history is we have elevated certain titles to be honorific, and the Bible never has that kind of perspective. There are no honorific titles in the New Testament regarding our role in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, We are all brothers, and uh, even those functions like being an elder or a deacon, the word deacon actually means servants, the same word as minister, diakonos. And what the Bible does teach that we are all ministers without exception. When when you were saved and brought into the family of God, you became a minister of Jesus Christ. You're his servant. That's a lofty title, by the way. In fact, one of the most lofty titles of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the second person of the Godhead, is he is the servant of the Lord. You heard that this morning in Isaiah 42. He's the servant of the Lord. He's the minister of the Lord. That is, the Father sent him into the world to accomplish this task of saving us. That was far beyond the ability of anyone else than the Son of God who was able to come and do what was necessary to forgive us our sins or to bring us into the family of God. And he also made us ministers, servants of Jesus Christ. I read a, uh, the results of a study that I ran into somewhere uh, about opinions of Christians in America, American Christians, and without looking at it, let me see if I can remember. This is age-related, my memory. Uh, that <clears throat> 40% of Christians in America do not believe there's any significance of going to church, a church attendance, reading the Bible, or serving in the church. Now, I don't know how they conducted this survey. I think you could set those questions up where you get the wrong answer every time. But the fact is, it does appear that those kinds of, that kind of thinking has permeated the church. What's so important about you being with the saints, with the community of faith on a regular basis? What's so important about, we call it church attendance. What we're really talking about is gathering with the saints to worship together and to hear the word, to sit under the word of God, the proclamation of the word of God. Our responsibility as preachers of the word is to to preach. The word preach means to proclaim it with authority. Not my authority, not the authority of the preacher, but the authority of the word of God. That we present the truth of the word of God in a way that you understand this is the word of God. And that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And it lays us bare before him to whom we must give an account. And it's a good thing to sit under the proclamation of the word because it brings us to the place we need to be before God. And so this morning I want us to look at Second Corinthians. This passage has, has had um, great impact on me over the years, and especially as I've been looking at it again. It's sobering. I want to go back to verse 10. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15. But I want to go back to verse 10 and read from there. If you will open your Bibles to Second Corinthians 
chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word appear means to be manifest, <laughs> to be laid bare. For someone to tell you, you know, for someone to tell you the truth about yourself, sometimes it's really difficult to take, isn't it? We want to think that's just your opinion. And maybe, perhaps, they have some insight that you need to hear. Well, the judgment seat of Christ is the bema seat where we're going to stand before him and he's going to judge our works as Christians so that we can be rewarded. But Paul puts it in such a way, we're going to be manifest before the judgment seat of Christ because the eyes of Jesus penetrate the heart and motives. He not only judges for what we do, but why we do it. And those things that we have done for Christ because of our love for him and our faith in him and his love for his people, we're going to be rewarded for. And back in chapter 3, he said, those things that we didn't do with that motivation are going to be burned up, which is a great act of grace. You won't have to live for eternity thinking, wow, he thought I did that because I loved him. I don't want him to ever know that wasn't why I did it. It'll be gone. Because we are manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, we must all appear, be manifest before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or fallow. The word bad is the Greek word phallos, and it means worthless. You know what fallow ground is, right? When you leave, you leave ground fallow for a year, and in Israel they had to do that. Every seven years they had to take one year and not grow a crop, leave the land fallow. The reason for that was God wanted them to come to have absolute confidence in him and not their farming ability. And so they had to leave the land fallow, and because they didn't, they went into captivity for 70 years because they failed to trust God. Well, this, it's used here to mean those things that I've done but have no value to them. They're worthless. Uh, if I stand up here and preach the Bible and teach the Bible and parse every verb and uh, diagram every sentence and tell you exactly all the knowledge I could ever accumulate about this text, but I'm not proclaiming the truth in the text clearly and with relevance and to make it compelling so that you can see how this fits in your own life then I'm not serving you. That's a misservice. And so he says we're all going to stand before him and he's going to reward us based on what we've done and why we've done it. And then Paul begins to talk about his own life and ministry. He tells us what his motivation is and what it is that drives him to fulfill this calling to minister for Jesus Christ. Now, one thing that 2 Corinthians does, it, it tells you in some detail about all the things that Paul suffered because he was a minister of Jesus Christ. And he suffered many, many things. And he was being attacked right now. As this letter was being written, it was written because there had been those who had come into the church at Corinth and were trying to take over that church and basically wanted, they critiqued Paul and said he wasn't a true apostle that he didn't know what he was talking about, and they should stop listening to him. I was reading a missionary letter from Jim, Jim Robinette, who's in Africa, 
And he said one of the things that they face there that's really troubling is that churches can be so divisive. They can be these groups and individual churches, and, some, and there are people who are trying to gain authority and power over these churches and people. And I thought, wow, just like America, huh? But Paul goes on, he says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. It's pretty obvious why he says that, isn't it, from verse 10? Oh, you mean I'm going to actually be held accountable for what I do? And so Paul says, Therefore, having come to know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest. Same word is used in, in verse 10. We are laid bare before God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. I hope you can see where our hearts and you don't judge us just based upon appearance. Paul describes himself as being someone who wasn't very impressive in his appearance. He had been beaten so many times. He carried so many scars. He probably walked with a limp because of all that he suffered. And so he wasn't an impressive guy. And he says, so I hope what you see, what you look at is not my appearance, but my heart. I want my heart to be laid bare before you. And then he says in verse 12, we're not again commending ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us because he's under attack. He said, I want you to know the truth about us. I don't want you to believe the lies because I want to have input in your life. I want to spend my life serving you and by helping you to walk with Christ. And he goes on, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, literally face. They take pride in face. That is how they present themselves and not in heart. That's what they really are. For we, if we are beside ourselves, this is one of the attacks on Paul. He's, uh, he's, off, he's often, he think, his credentials are how excited he gives and how beside himself he gets. But he's, Paul says, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. He gets very personal here in explaining his motivation and his method of ministry. And what it is, it's a great example to us as Christians who serve Christ. There is something incredibly significant about the fact that you serve Christ. He's called you to serve him. It's the great privilege we have that we can actually live our lives with a significant purpose to serve the living Christ. Now, he describes his new covenant ministry, which we are under, and we all have a new covenant ministry. And he says that new covenant ministry is we persuade men. We persuade men. He actually believed that the revelation that he had received from Jesus Christ was something so good and so glorious that he was obligated to pursue people and persuade people to believe and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Have you ever been convinced of anything like that? You know, it's one thing you get excited about something. I know this past week I was talking to somebody who's on a new diet, and they're so excited about it. Just wait four or five weeks. You know how that is. 
There are certain things we can be so convinced of that we need to persuade people this is the way to go. I remember when Rich bought his uh, motorcycle, that, his, uh, that was back in 2005, and he bought a brand new BMW. And that's all he wanted to talk about. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I'm trying to talk to him about the atonement, and he wants to tell me about this 1200 GS BMW motorcycle. But you see, things that we love, we have no problem trying to persuade people of the value of this, right? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ had such an impact on the Apostle Paul that he says, what I give my life to is persuading men. The word persuade here is connected to the word faith. It means uh, to entrust somebody with truth. You want to convince them of truth because they need to know truth. We're right in the middle of a political campaign, and various people are convinced about certain candidates, which I won't mention, and uh, they really want to convince you that this is what we ought to do. And then there's some of you that aren't convinced about anything. You, you, you don't have a clue. What do you do? Who's your write-in candidate? But it's wonderful to have convictions about things to the point that you want to persuade men of the truth about Jesus Christ. I want you to turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 9. This is the account of the conversion of Paul. Paul's conversion is quite dramatic, as you know, because uh, he was on his way to, to arrest Christians, followers of Jesus, because he thought Jesus was a false messiah. And so in, in Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> we have... This account of uh, his encounter with Jesus Christ, because what happened was, as he's walking on his way to arrest these Christians, the Lord Jesus confronts him on the road. I mean, really confronts him. That he manifested his presence in such a way that it was pure light. It blinded Paul, the glory of Christ. Now, Jesus had already been crucified, had been raised from the dead, had ascended back to the Father. And so now, because he's going to call Paul into the ministry, and so he confronts him on this road, and Paul is absolutely stunned by what he sees. He doesn't know who it is. He doesn't know what it is. He just knows this is something glorious. He falls to the ground. He's blinded. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, that was his name before he became a Christian. Why are you persecuting me? And so Paul asked the right question. Saul asked the right question. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? Now, he knew he was Lord because this was, he saw the glory of God. So he knew this was Lord. He just didn't know who it was. He didn't know it was Jesus. And so Jesus um, confronts him. He comes to faith in Christ. Well, what happens is he becomes totally disabled and uh, he can't even move. He can't do anything. And so uh, he's told to go into the city. They lead him into the city. And then the Lord arranges for a Christian to meet with him. Now, this Christian didn't want to meet with him because he knew Saul's reputation, that he was out to get Christians. But Jesus told him, I want you to meet with him I, because he needs to come to understand what his calling is. 
and what he's going to suffer in order to fulfill that calling. Are there any things that you've decided to do in life that if you knew what you were getting into, you never would have done it? Every pastor, every time I have a conversation with some pastor who has a building situation, somewhat like ours, they always say, if we knew what we were getting into, we never would have started. I've heard, I've actually heard this from people say about marriage. If I knew what I was getting into, I never would have got married. That's a sinful attitude, by the way. But the Apostle Paul wants to meet uh, brothers. The Apostle Paul is, is in a mess, and he needs someone to clarify what's going on. And so Jesus sends this messenger to him, and Jesus tells him that he's going to suffer many things. In fact, in verse 10 of Acts 9, I guess I was going to read something to you, wasn't I? Acts chapter 9, verse 10 Now, there was a disciple at Damascus, that's where he was going to arrest Christians, whose name was uh, Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, so Jesus confronts Paul on the road, and then he speaks to Ananias, who he's going to use to talk to Paul and explain to him what he's to do. And so Ananias says, here I am, Lord, and he knows this is the Lord Jesus. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. (laughs) Saul is praying. He just had an encounter with the living Christ, and so he's scared to death, and he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that is, Jesus gave him this vision of Ananias, and he says, you go to him, you you come, and and you're going to go and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He has, he's actually got a warrant to arrest Christians who, who worship Jesus. But the Lord says to him, says to Ananias, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear. He's an instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. But I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. (laughs) What a way to start. You know, they never do that when they're selling you something, do they? They never say, now the biggest problem you're going to have with this thing is it's going to cost you twice what you're paying for it to get rid of it because it's hazardous waste. <laughs> but Jesus tells him, you're gonna, he says, I want him to know the things that he's going to suffer in order to follow me and to fulfill this mission that I have him on, that I'm sending him on. And so Paul is so persuaded by this gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ. He's so persuaded that it's the truth that he says... This message, this truth about Jesus Christ is worthy to give your life to, and it's the very thing that I try to persuade every man that I encounter. I try to persuade him of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he faithfully fulfilled this ministry that Jesus had assigned him in the face of all this opposition and suffering that he has experienced. 
And at the end of his life, when he writes the last letter that he writes, that's Second Timothy, that was his final letter. This is what he says. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the mouth of the lion. In other words, he delivered me from all those attacks and all those ways that Satan tried to destroy me. So he was glad. At the end of his life, he was glad that he had answered this call. Now, you know what happened to Paul. He was beheaded by Nero. So this servant of Christ, who who served him for over 30 years, faithfully, putting his life on the line continually, he suffered shipwreck again and again. He, He was imprisoned. He was beaten many times. And yet he said, it was worth it. It was a privilege to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so now what he's going to do is describe what motivated him to fulfill this ministry of persuading men. And I want you to notice in the text. The first is, the first thing that motivated him to preach the gospel, at whatever cost, was he was coming to know, he had come to know the fear of the Lord. In verse 11. Now that follows verse 10, because in verse 10 he talks about the fact he's going to have to stand before Christ transparently, and he's going to be rewarded based upon what he has done for the right motivation. Well, therefore, having come to know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. I want you to see my heart, he says. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us because we're being, they were under, he was under attack and they were being tempted to believe these criticisms of Paul. And he says, I just want you to know, I want you to see the truth about me. I'm not trying to deceive you. I want you to know the truth. And so he says, so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. The word appearance or face is literally the word, always has to do with the way, you know how you're concerned about how you appear, how you look, you know how you look in the mirror before you leave the house? Well, at least some of you do, I can tell. You, you get yourself all ready and you look at the mirror and see how you look and you, you know, you get your hair, you make sure the ball spot isn't showing and all that. That's appearance. And it really doesn't mean a lot, does it? We've all learned that. Appearance doesn't mean a whole lot. What really matters is substance. And that's what Paul says. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are, if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Now, his activity of persuading men of preaching the gospel flows out of this, these motivations. His activity, we persuade men. And what he's talking about is gospel intention. That is faith in Christ. He wants people to come to faith in Christ. Coming to faith in Christ means you come to the place not only that you know what the gospel is, that it's the message of how God sent his son into the world to die for sinners and to be resurrected so that through him, everyone who believes will be saved. It's the gospel message. But what Paul wants is for men to be persuaded of that gospel message and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So he's, he wants to persuade men, first of all, because... He knows that they need to, and that's why he persuades men, he knows they need faith in Christ. 
That's the beginning, the middle, and the end of discipling. We say this a lot around here, that the purpose of the church is to make disciples. The purpose of the church is this process of discipling, making disciples who make disciples. And we can say it so much, you just think, oh, he can't remember he said that already last week. Yes, I can. I want to say it again. That's the purpose that we have. That's our mission. I mean, that's what I mean by that. It's our mission. Our purpose is to glorify God, but we do that by making disciples. And so Paul understood this, and he understood that what it takes to make disciples is for them to be persuaded of the truth about Jesus Christ, not just when you first came to faith, but throughout the Christian life. Now, you've noticed this in the epistles. It teaches about all kinds of things, but always everything it teaches on, like marriage, how a husband's supposed to treat his wife, how a wife's supposed to treat her husband, raising children, paying your bills, doing your work, relating to your boss, everything it teaches is simply this. It is the implications of the gospel in regards to all of life. Why should children submit to their parents? Because that is an implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father. He obeyed the Father. And that's where he ended up, at the cross, to fulfill the will of God. Now, uh, his motivation is that he has come to know the fear of the Lord. And the reason, the way that he did that was this truth about the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about this last week, but the fact is, every believer, this is for believers, this is for those who come to faith in Christ, every single believer is going to be manifest before the judgment seat of Christ in order that you might be rewarded. But he's actually going to evaluate your ministry. Wow. He's going to evaluate your ministry. He's going to evaluate what you've done for him, what you've done in his name. And so Paul says, this causes me to fear the Lord. I know the fear of the Lord. Now, all of us are aware, if you've read the Bible at all, uh, for example, Proverbs 111, verse 10 says the begin- that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or Psalm 17 says it's the beginning of knowledge. I'm sorry, that's Proverbs 1-7 and uh, Psalm. There's not that many Psalms. I mean, not that many Proverbs. It's Psalm 111, verse 10. But the fear of the Lord, what does this mean, the fear of the Lord? Well, the best way to to know what it means is this. Get a concordance. You know what a concordance is? A Bible concordance, you can look up the word fear of the Lord, that expression, and it will tell you every place it's used in the Bible. You want to know what the fear of the Lord is? Look up every place it's used in the Bible, and you'll get a clear picture of what the fear of the Lord is. Now, in, in, um, in 1 John, John says, uh, perfect love, mature love is constantly casting out fear. So why should we fear the Lord? That's what you need to discover from looking at it in the scriptures. Let me show you just one passage. It's easy to find. I mean, it's Genesis 22. Turn to Genesis 22. I know somebody here has got to know what Genesis 22 is about because it's a key passage in the Bible. And it's about Abraham offering his son Isaac in response to God's command to him. 
Take your son, Isaac, go up on the mountain and offer him as an offering before me. Now, you got to understand, this is Isaac. This was the promised child that Abraham had when he was 100 years old. This is a son that he wanted his whole life, but he, his, he, they were childless, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, but then God blessed him with a child, Isaac. And Isaac's, Isaac's name actually means laughter. And the reason he's named laughter is because Sarah thought it was ridiculous to think that she at 98 years old was going to have a child. But God says, when I come back next year, you'll have this child and you will be laughing, but not because it's a joke, but because of the joy you'll have. Well, this is a gift from God, supernatural gift from God. And then God says to him, I want you to go up on the mountain and offer him up as an offering. And so he does this. And he offers, up, uh, he offers up Isaac, as the Lord had told him. And so he takes him up there, and even Isaac is confused. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? And Isaac said, the Lord will provide. But he knows that he's going to offer Isaac up. So he takes him up on the mountain. And just as he's about to slay him, and offer him on this altar. God says, wait, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he says, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know, get this, now I know that you fear God. And what in the world is the fear of the Lord, the fear of God? It's when you come to have such an opinion, such a perspective of God, that what he wants matters more than anything else in life. And that's exactly what we struggle with every day, is we struggle with, am I going to please God, or am I going to please myself? God has called me to do this, but I don't want to do this. I want to do this. Now, some people always puzzle over, how do you know the will of God? Well, the first thing you do is you open your Bible and you read the scriptures, and it tells you exactly what the, the revealed will of God is, you know? Like, what's God's will for uh, you husbands in regards to your wife? Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for Wives, how, what's God's will for you towards your husband? Respect. You see, it's easier for a wife to love her husband and a husband to respect his wife than vice versa. Because most of us married, most of us guys marry women we highly respect. And God's called us to love them in a sacrificial way to the place I'd be willing to lay down my life for her. And wives marry a guy that they love, but sometimes they don't have much respect for him. And so the will of God is that you respect your husband, and the will of God for your men is that you love your wives the way Christ loved the church. That's the will of God. But see, you'll only do the will of God if you fear the Lord. If you reverence him to such an esteem that it doesn't matter what you think or what anybody else thinks, you know that this is what you ought to do because you fear the Lord. You reverence him above all things. You know that he knows exactly what you ought to do in this situation. And he's revealed it to you in his word. There really is very few things that you have to puzzle over in life wondering, I wonder what the will of the Lord is here. You know, you, you don't know whether you should buy a Ford or a Chevy. Well, it's clear the will of the Lord is you buy a Ford. 
No, those are silly things, aren't they? It doesn't matter. Especially if you like to change, you like to work on your car every week. <laughs> what does that fix or repair daily is a Ford? But the, yeah, you all know the saying. <laughs> um, but the fear of the Lord is this wonderful thing where my attitude towards God is such that I respect him and I reverence him. And I know that his will is the perfect life. Maybe the hardest life, like Paul, but it's the good life. You're going to suffer, but when you suffer for the will of God, it's a good thing. In fact, we saw this earlier in this book, that God uses your suffering to increase the glory you're going to experience when you stand in the presence of God. Now, what happens when you fear the Lord? What in the world happens? How, how does life change when you fear the Lord? Let me tell you, a real simple little thing. This is Isaiah 8.14. Isaiah 8.14 says, When you fear the Lord, He becomes a sanctuary for you. He becomes the one that you can flee to and know that He will protect. You see, until you fear the Lord, you won't flee to the Lord. You will resist the Lord. And so Paul says, because I know the, the, the fear of the Lord, I persuade men. In other words, I'm never neutral on this issue. I want to persuade men of the truth of the gospel. It's interesting in Scripture that Jesus, when he sends his disciples out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, he says to them, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to every city. When you go into a town, these are little, like, this is like knights, and you go into knights, and, and you just kind of hang around in the center of the town. We don't have a center, though, exactly. But you go into this town, you just hang around, and somebody's going to invite you into their home. And if there's a man of peace there, you remain there, and you share the truth with him of the gospel of the kingdom. And if there's no man of peace there, that is, there's nobody who is willing to hear what you have to say, then move on. Because God is, because Christ has sent them out to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what he sent us for, to preach the good news of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 12 and 13, why is he telling these things? If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we have a sound mind, it's for you. What does he mean by this? Well, it's a little bit puzzling, and there's difference of opinion. The word for uh, beside myself is the, the Greek word exhistemi. We get a word ecstasy from it. You know, when you're ecstatic, amazed, you're kind of out of your mind. <laughs> it's like you're beside yourself over something. Well, some believe that what Paul is talking about, because he had come to have this reputation Remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 14? He says, I speak in tongues more than you all. But in the church, I would rather speak five words that you understand than 5,000 words that you don't understand. So he says, I don't speak in tongues in the congregation. Now, there are some who believe that what he's saying is that when I experience this intimacy, this ecstasy in my worship of God, I'm not doing that to impress anybody. I don't do that before people. I'm not trying to impress anyone. And you wonder, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means is what you see on TV all the time. I remember watching a TV program where these evangelists, these uh, TV preachers, were demonstrating how the real work of the Spirit was to make you drunk. And so they were, uh, they were like laughing, falling down, acting like they were as drunk as a skunk, and, and how it was, this was a glorious experience. 
He's saying, my credentials isn't my ecstatic experience with God. It's the fact that I'm in my right mind when I speak to you. I want to speak to you in a way, this is what preachers have to do. This is what we're called to do. We have to speak the word of God accurately. We have to speak it clearly. And we have to speak in a way that the message is compelling. That it's a compelling message. Because if I don't get that, then I'm not really getting the the message, am I? I'm not getting the, the message of the text. Because the word of God is compelling to the believer. I was thinking this morning, how could I convince you that this thing of you being a minister of Jesus Christ is really good and wonderful and glorious? That's why you should hear what you will be motivated by. Why, what, how could I make you feel really good about the fact that you're a minister? I don't know. What I do know is that the Holy Spirit will make you aware of that fact. He'll give you a desire you may be very shy and you're hard to even, it's very hard for you to even talk to somebody you don't know really well. But God's going to put you in situations where he's going to use you as a mouthpiece for him. And you're going to, you're going to fulfill this calling that God has on your life to serve Christ by your actions and your words. Our actions should validate our words. But if you, all you have is actions and no words, you're never going to be able to persuade anybody of anything. We have to speak the gospel. We have some uh, tracks over there called The Story, and what those tracks are is one way of sharing the gospel, and it basically just gives you the whole story, God's story that centers in Christ in a very brief, concise way so that you can get it straight in your own mind as you talk to people about Christ Hey, this isn't just some sudden idea that, that somebody came up with. This is the, pl- the eternal plan of God to glorify his son. So we share the gospel. We're talking about something that is our story in our relationship with God. I mean, it's really upsetting to some people when you tell them the Bible teaches, Ephesians chapter 1, for example, teaches that God set his love on every one of you who are Christians today in eternity past. He set his affection on you. He chose you to be an object of his grace. That's what the Bible says. I believe that. Uh, You just can't argue against it. It's clear. It's very clear. It says it over and over and over again. That when God's work in your life began was in eternity past where he determined that he was going to pour out his grace in your life. And then he worked that plan out. And that's that's a wonderful truth. And so when we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching the good news that's a part of this grand story of God, who God is and what God has done and what God's going to do in the future. And God wants to manifest his power through us, but not in ecstasy. Now, let me show you something. This is kind of stunning. Look at Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, right at the end of the chapter. Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1, the last two verses, listen to this. Paul says, we proclaim him, that is, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man. And the word admonishing means you force people to hear the message, so to speak. You don't beat around the bush. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom And he's talking really about discipleship, about discipling people. 
And he says, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And now get this. He explains something. He says, for this purpose also, I labor. The word labor, kopios, means to labor to the point of exhaustion. means to work really hard at it. So he says, for this purpose, I labor, striving. And that's the Greek word agony. Agonizomai. It means just... What it sounds like is when you go to the gym and you hear these guys agonizing and lifting weights. You should do that every once in a while. I just go down there and listen to people grunt and groan. That's agonizomai. And Paul says, I do that in teaching and trying to help people in this process of becoming disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. So he says, for this purpose also I labor, agonizing according to what? The power the supernatural power of God, which mightily works within me. See, a lot of people want the power of God. They want to be able to raise the dead and heal the sick and cause, you know, magical things to take place. Well, let me tell you something really magical. That is relating to a, another person and actually being used of God as an instrument in his hands to see them come to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. That's magical. <laughs> I mean, that's supernatural is what it is. And if you've raised kids, you know how this is totally, completely in the hands of the living God. If he doesn't empower you to do this in your children's life, it ain't going to get done. You need the power of God. You need the almighty power of God to accomplish this. That's spiritual power. So Paul says, my first motivation is I came to know the fear of the Lord, and therefore I persuade men. And the second one is in the first part of verse 14. He says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Why do you do what you do, Paul? The love of Christ controls us. Now he's going to tell you in just a second what he's talking about with the love of Christ. He's very specific. He's talking about Christ's love for you, Christ's love for me, Christ's love for people. That's what controls me, Paul says. And then he says the third reason he gives is understanding gospel implications. This flows right out of the love of Christ controlling us. He says in the last part of verse 14 down to verse 15, having concluded this, I've come to this conclusion, Paul says, that one died for all, therefore all died And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's a mouthful. That's the gospel. Right there, that's the gospel. He died, it says, he says, having concluded this, that one died for all. That's the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. On their behalf. Now, I, I admit, living in our culture, it's a hard sell to tell people, guess what God wants to do for you? He wants to change you so radically that you stop living for yourself. <laughs> that sounds like a curse, doesn't it? I mean, you'd have to change everything in your life. You mean I'm supposed to be not living for myself, but for him who died and rose again on my behalf? Yes. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, the love of Christ controls me. And what he means by that is this gospel truth. Because I've come to this conclusion that one died for all and all died. I need to clarify something. Because I I can see the puzzled look on a couple of you. Five-point Calvinists. 
This is what the text says. It says, Christ died for all, and therefore all died, in order that those who live, those who come to faith in Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I believe in what I call it is the effectual atonement. The, The death of Christ on our behalf is going to fulfill every purpose for which God designed it to fulfill. It's, it's effectual. It's going to produce the effects that God wanted it to produce. The fact that you're sitting here and you're saved is proof that God, one of the designs of God's in, in sending his son to die for your sins, one of his designs in the atonement was to save you. And therefore we say, you know, you're one of the elect. Because God, he chose you. That's why you came to faith in Christ. But what this text says is that Christ died for all. And that moved the heart of Paul. Now, let me give you a word of explanation here because you see it right in the next verse. I've got to get back to 2 Corinthians just a second. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, the verse where we'll start next time. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? We don't look at anyone based upon their standing in the flesh. In other words, what you've accomplished in this life, what you look like, what you've achieved, what you possess. We don't look at anyone through that lens anymore, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. You see, Paul was an expert on the Christ as he was unveiled in Scripture. He just had it all wrong. When Jesus showed up, he didn't recognize that Jesus was the Christ. And he said, we used to look at the Christ through the eyes, the lens of the flesh, But now we look at him through the lens of the cross. Now, the whole point is this. Understanding gospel implications is this, that every person I ever talk to, every person I ever talk to is one of those people who fits this category. I don't look at them through the flesh any longer. I'm to look at them through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because part of, one of the things that God did in the gospel was give us a gospel that we could preach to anybody, anywhere, on the face of this earth. If anybody's still breathing and they're on this earth, they are targets of the gospel. And we need to preach the gospel to them. We need to tell them about life in Jesus Christ. And I say, yes, it's okay to say to them, Jesus died for your sins. And if you believe on him, he'll save you and forgive you and bring you into the family of God. And if that grips your heart, I told you a few weeks ago, I confessed to you something. I was kind of being sarcastic, but it was true. I had, we had a homeless guy was sleeping in the back of our garage down at the church office. And so when I went around there and saw him, I was kind of shocked. And he's laying there asleep, and all of his junk is there. And so I tried to wake him up, and he kind of roused a little bit, and then he fell back asleep. But when I came back, I had to go do something. I came back, I had to wake him up again. This time, he had tennis shoes on, so I just started kicking him on his feet, on the bottom of his feet, to wake him up. And, I, and the first thing I said to him wasn't, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I said, you got to get out of here. You can't stay here. You've got to pick up your junk, and you got to get out of here. It never crossed my mind that I was talking to somebody who fits this very category who needed Christ. It didn't even cross my mind. That's a confession. 
I've already confessed it to the Father, and He's forgiven me. But I got to tell you, every person you ever meet is an object of God's grace in a very real way. I could show you in this passage a little further on. It says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not imputing their trespasses against them. And he's given us this job of being ambassadors of Christ. And so we appeal to men, be reconciled to God. God's done everything necessary for you to receive eternal life if you'll just turn to him in faith and believe. And then I have this incredible confidence in God that God has actually chosen to save a people for his son. And so when I share the gospel, if they turn to Christ, it's not because I'm so convincing, but it's because the God of the universe has set his grace upon them and he calls them to himself. But I got to tell you, you're going to be surprised a thousand times. You're going to have those occasions where you think there's no way that guy or that woman could possibly be an object of God's grace. No, that's the one most likely. Most likely, that's one of them. And so we should be controlled by the love of Christ that's manifested in the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world in John 3.16 is referring to the entire world at war with God. God so loved this world that was at war with him, that was far from him, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I'm a Calvinist. Uh, I believe in the doctrines of grace. Tulip, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, I would say effectual atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. But what I'm saying is, don't be the kind of Calvinist that never shares the gospel. Don't have this attitude, well, God's going to save people who he wants to save, so there's no use me getting involved. Well, let me tell you, you're going to have trouble at the Bema seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, because his eyes are going to shine right through you, and they'll reveal the truth about your heart and my heart. And so what am I called to do? I'm called to be what God told me to do. What John says, if you love God, you'll love his people, and if you love his people, you'll love those around you. You'll love your enemies. That's the effect of knowing God. The effect of knowing God through faith in Jesus Christ is you love God, you love Christ, and you love people. And sometimes you're going to have to repent because all of us are going to run into people that we don't want any part of. We don't want to have another moment's time having to deal with them. Or or is it just me? (laughs) You ever had that problem? So those three things. So what should we do about it? What's, so what's the implications for us? Well, here they are. First of all, live in light of the second coming of Christ. Christ is coming. We're told this all over the place. First Thessalonians says one of, the, one of the effects of putting faith in Christ is that you live in expectation of the return of Christ. Jude says if you want to keep yourselves in the love of God as a group, the people of God, you, one of the things you have to be doing is celebrating the fact that Jesus is coming back. Live in joyful anticipation of the second coming. And when you start living in joyful anticipation of the second coming of Christ, it's going to fill your heart with the fear of the Lord. That's a good thing. It's not a negative thing. It's not like, oh, I hope he doesn't come today. No, I want to stand in the presence of God clothed in the, in, the, in the grace of Christ. I want to be clothed in Christ. Secondly, let the love of Christ control your heart. And one of the ways to do that is preach the gospel to your heart. Pre- preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to each other. 
Preach the gospel to each other. That means tell each other the truth about the gospel. And you think, well, they already know the gospel. I know, but they need to hear it from you. Talk to each other about the gospel, because what it does, it will fill your heart with the love of Christ. And you start looking at people through the lens of Jesus Christ. You know, Chip G, the guy that we prayed for, he's got cancer. He's got um, pancreatic cancer. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine who is his uh, a cousin, his wife's a cousin. And he said he was talking to him the other day. And he says, how are you doing? He says, I'm really tired. He says, oh, really? Is, is it because of the sickness? He says, no, I went to San Francisco and we, we, tried to, we tried to save these. We tried to deliver these drunks over on the streets of San Francisco. We were trying to come get, get them to the place so they could sober up and hear the gospel. And I'm exhausted. Well, that's where Paul, Paul says that you'll, you'll experience the power of God at times like that. And you might say, well, that's a silly thing to do. Well, I just assume his motivation is the love of Christ. That's what I assume. I assume when you talk to somebody about Christ, your motivation is the love of Christ because you, the gospel's getting to you. It's actually getting to you. And it's, it's pouring out of you as you're talking to people who deserve to go to hell just like you do. But for whom Christ died. And then finally, uh, see every person through the lens of the gospel. This is really a good thing because, you know, when I, I'm really bad about names. I meet people and they tell me their name. I've always been this way, though. This isn't age-related. Because is, <laughs> I was this way when I was 21. I, I don't remember people's names because I think I don't concentrate enough. That's what my wife says. But uh, here's what's easy to remember. I don't remember your name, but I know you're the guy for whom Christ died. You're the guy who needs the gospel. And so you, you may not even remember their name, but you can remember that they're somebody for whom Christ died. That's what's to compel us. And if you see every person through the lens of the gospel, it will open your mouth. It will cause you to open your mouth and to live your life like Jesus. You want to know what that's like? Just read the gospels. What is Jesus like? Well, the Pharisee says this is what he's like. He talks to the tax gatherers and the, and the prostitutes and the drunks. That's what he's like. Why is that? Because the love of Christ compels us. And therefore, we should look at every person through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. We'll stop there. Let me pray for you. In fact, why don't you stand? Let's pray. Father, we want your name to be Hallowed, that is, we want your name to be reverenced. We want you to be seen for who you are. We want to live our lives in such a way that not only is it pleasing to you, but it projects to all around us that we actually love you, that we want to live for you, that we have the message from you that's so glorious and good, and it fits the need of every person we ever talk to. They need Christ. So I pray, Father, that you would, you would do something in our heart to cause us to look through the lens of the gospel as we look at everyone, that we would no longer look at them through the eyes of the flesh, but we would look at them through the lens of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use us for your glory, we pray, to bring many people to faith and to disciple them so that they walk with Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. 
respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.